Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover the White House. And I'm Aisha Roscoe. I also cover the White House. Allow us to introduce ourselves. This is NPR, National Public Radio. For 50 years now, NPR has been covering politics. From National Public Radio in Washington, I'm Robert Conley with All Things Considered. It's everything from campaigns to presidential scandals to everything in between. First reports that President Nixon would resign. The space shuttle challenger lifted off. As of today, the wall that bisects Berlin. The extent of the epidemic of Kaposi's sarcoma. Our sound has changed a lot. Going to this state and going to that state. And then you like fist bumps and goes, yeah! (laughs) All right. (laughs) Welcome to the first episode of the NPR Politics Podcast. But as Mara Lyason says, in the end, we've really been doing the same thing all this time. Talking to people, then telling you what they said and what it all means. As NPR celebrates its 50th anniversary, we're doing a special episode looking back at some of the big political moments and the women who shaped how NPR covered them. And it makes sense to start out with Linda Wertheimer, somebody who defined and shaped NPR's political coverage from the first days the network was on the air. Hey, Linda. Hi. So I I know, Linda, that you've talked before about how you had no idea um, what you were doing when you were building NPR, but you did build NPR. Was there a moment when you realized you could do this? When I first, the very first thing that I ever did on the air on NPR wasn't me on the air. It was me directing All Things Considered. And it was a scary moment because we didn't know what was on the show. And no one could tell us because they didn't know either. (laughs) And things would come in and people would throw the big reels across the room and the engineer would catch them. It was was completely terrifying. And when I got out of there, all I could do was cry. I cried for a while. And but I was but then they they had the they had the program on and we were hearing the rerun of it. And I thought, this is good. This is amazing. <laughs> we did that. <laughs> I was panicked out of my mind, but this was good. And I, and, and so it went on. Next on All Things Considered, we thought we'd go a bit more into the fallout, as it were, from the demonstrations in Washington against the... And Linda, when you went from, from directing behind the mic to in front of the mic, you know, one of the first major stories you covered was Watergate, the scandal that started as a break-in of the Democratic headquarters, but quickly snowballed into this massive, massive investigation and scandal that ultimately brought down the Nixon administration. What was that like? Well, you know, these days we've had several impeachments, Mm -hmm. but this was the first one in a very long time. The first one since very, very nearly the Civil War period. It was just, uh, and I I have to say that I think we we did understand what a very, very big deal it was. So I was terrified, and I think a lot of Americans were really afraid that this could just bust up the whole thing that this would be the end of democracy as we know it, that it would be Mm. so shocking and tragic for so many people that they would decide that they had to reorganize and redo the government and we would not be what we had been before. It was, I thought it was so incredibly serious. And so did, I think, most of the people that had anything to do with it. I mean, I was 
wandering around through the halls of Congress, um, waiting for this House Judiciary Committee, which was my particular job. The House Judiciary Committee was going to Mm -hmm. uh, draft and then pass articles of impeachment. And then they would go to the House and the House would vote on them. And if the House passed the articles of impeachment, then there would be a trial in the Senate. So we, we were at that point, just before the uh, House began its consideration, that was a moment that I remember as being incredibly frightening. You're mentioning how seriously everyone took this. And you, you mentioned right at the top that we have now had two back-to-back years in which there are impeachments. And it's just a, a different feeling. And I, and I, you know, I didn't live through it, but I've read so much of that coverage and I've, I've, I've consumed so much about it. And one of the things that I felt you know, covering in the hallways of Congress, the the last few rounds of scandals and impeachments that we've had, is that there was a feeling of cynicism and and that everything was baked in and the outcome was already determined. And it feels to me like it was just a totally different feeling of whether you were Republican or Democrat, people took this seriously, whether you supported or opposed the impeachment process. Everyone was serious about their jobs. And it feels to me that that is a different universe than the, than the Capitol that Aisha and I cover. It feels it feels that way to me too. Um, I, I, for example, Peter Rodino, who was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, when he called for the vote on uh, the articles of impeachment, there were tears running down his face. Mr. Rodino, hi. He was, you know, he was he was incredibly moved by the importance of what he was doing. That is the thing that is different from, you know, now. They had a responsibility. They had to live up to it. And even if it, even if it messed up their lives big time, these guys that we've got now <laughs> don't see things that way. What's the, in your mind, the best change over the years of how the organization has changed, how the way we cover the news has changed, how the way we've covered politics has changed? What was the best changes? Is that the question? Yeah, or maybe the worst, too, if you want to, you know, we can (laughs) let's trash talk NPR a little bit. (laughs) I think that NPR has uh, one of the best things is that, you know, we've continued to uh, continue to bring people in who are who understand what it is that NPR was trying to do and have tried to do something, you know, something very similar, letting people talk about what they think and uh, trying to be as clear and as serious as we can be about the issues and explain them. I mean, you think of Nina Totenberg basically invented a way of covering the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. and explains it all to us. And all of us understand it was a, I mean, that was part of what we were supposed to do. And uh, we still do that. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Linda, and cheers to 50 years. Not that you were here all 50 years, but cheers <laughs> to 50 years for NPR. I was here all you, 50 here years. All 50 Are you years. kidding? <laughs> all right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk to Nina Todeberg about exactly that, how she invented an entirely new way of covering the Supreme Court. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Hint, fruit-infused water with no calories or sweeteners. Hint water comes in over 25 flavors. The watermelon water actually tastes like watermelon. 
The blackberry water tastes like blackberries. Hint is water with a touch of true fruit flavor. You can get Hint water at stores, or you can have it delivered directly to your door. When you buy two cases, you'll get a third case free and free shipping. Visit drinkhint.com and use promo code NPR at checkout. And we're back, and Nina Totenberg, another of NPR's founding mothers, is here with us. Hey, Nina. Oh, I'm a founding sister. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to be a mother. (laughs) You know, it's your term, so whatever term you want. Um, Let's start with that, though, because, you know, it's we've been celebrating NPR's 50th anniversary. There's been a lot of conversation about just the the way that this this outlet started and and the role that uh, so many women played in really establishing it. But I think some podcast listeners don't quite know that full story. What was it like in the early days of NPR, and, and what should they know about about the work that you know Susan Sandberg and, and Cokie Roberts and Linda Wertheimer and you did in those early days? Well, Linda was the first. Susan Sandberg was the second. Uh, I came a couple of years later, and then we recruited Cokie, or maybe I should say she recruited us. <laughs> Her husband called me and said, I hear that there are a lot of women working at NPR, and there might be a spot there. And I said, they were just back from Greece, where he'd been assigned for the New York Times at the time. And I said, come over with a resume right away. And I brought it into the uh, news director, and I said, you have to consider this person. <laughs> you, you need to consider this person. And pretty soon, Cokie was working for us. And and so, Nina, how did you end up covering the Supreme Court? How, how did that come together? Well, I covered everything. What I covered for the first, certainly, two to three decades of NPR, but certainly at the very beginning, here was my beat. The House and Senate Judiciary Committees, the Supreme Court, um, the Justice Department, and, oh, by the way, every special prosecutor's investigation, every scandal, and the intelligence community. So I had a rather broad uh, mandate, and I also covered some politics. I went out on the road covering politics. So, but the Supreme Court is where you have left your mark and become like the Supreme Court reporter uh, on so many different fronts. And there was obviously the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas reporting you did. There is an HBO movie about that, among other things. Um... I wanted to talk in this conversation about about another moment where your reporting really stood out and kind of shaped the course of history, um, and that was the Douglas Ginsburg nomination. Can you tell us what happened and what you uncovered shortly after he was nominated? Well, this was after the uh, nomination of Robert Bork was rejected by the Senate rather decisively, including, I think, six or seven Republican votes. And then... President Reagan nominated Douglas Ginsburg, a judge on the D.C. Court of Appeals, who was pretty young at the time, uh, to take the seat that had, was vacant. And this lasted a very short time. I went up to Boston to do a profile of him and to investigate some leads I had and soon stumbled over the fact, and this seems rather like a kind of quaint scandal at the moment, um, that he had not only smoked marijuana, but he had done it in front of the children of some of the faculty members, which really upset mothers. And furthermore, that at the time, the Reagan administration had a policy that you couldn't have a job in the administration, even as a lowly assistant United States attorney, if you had smoked marijuana or taken any other kind of a drug after being admitted to the bar. And he certainly had been admitted to the bar. Well, this is all kind of insane in the modern world as we talk about it. But it was a big deal. 
And when I when I got to NPR, I got off the plane, got to NPR, and my boss said to me, you need to do this story tonight because it's starting to leak out. And so I went on the air live and I did the story. At least a half dozen witnesses at Harvard Law School told NPR that they had seen Ginsburg smoking marijuana during the mid and late 1970s and perhaps into the early 80s. He was described by these witnesses as a social user who on occasion brought the marijuana that was used by himself and others. This evening, Within, I would say, almost hours, uh, the Ginsburg nomination was withdrawn because of lack of Republican support. It was Republicans who went completely crazy. Well, within, you know, a matter of, I don't know how long, you know, a few years later, anybody who was nominated to anything who had ever smoked marijuana said so at the outset to the FBI and sometimes made a public statement so that it couldn't be shown as something that had been hidden and not disclosed. And and it was a nothing burger, including Clarence Thomas did that. I mean, we, we talk so much about the way that 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 the the women who who became the high profile reporters at first shaped the network, but I mean that's something I feel like we say around the building. W- what are some examples of how that really played out? How that made a difference in the organization that NPR became over the years? Well, basically, in the beginning, and in, and even as the years wore on, just about every beat and every major area of interest was covered by women. And the reason was, in the beginning, that no man would work for what they paid us. So the network was dominated by women, and we were enormously supportive of each other. I know that's hard for some people to believe. I've read in some some stories about... NPR's 50th anniversary, some suggestion, oh, there must have been enormous catfights. Actually, there weren't. When you talk to Mara, ask her how she got her job as White House correspondent. It involved a call that I made to her in Europe. And I said, Mara, they've posted the job. Get your resume in right away and send me a copy too, and I'll make sure it gets in so that it can't be lost in translation. So did she fax it to you? I would imagine it was like a fax or a mail. <laughs> there were <laughs> you couldn't scan it and attach it to an email. I love the story because you know around the 50th anniversary mark, a lot of people were sharing kind of moments like this of of NPR colleagues helping each other out one moment or another. And I have this specific memory when I was when I was not at NPR yet. I was a station reporter and I was having this huge problem. I didn't know what to deal with, and I had kind of emailed back and forth with Tamara Keith a little bit. I sent her this note and said, help, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. And she was in Russia covering the Olympics. And she was like, I'm at the figure skating finals, but I'll call you in a minute from the press box and spent like a half hour on the phone helping me sort out that issue. So I think kind of, you know, similar things with similar people over the years. I'm being helpful, good colleagues in a way that you don't see in a lot of other big places. Yes. I And I can say that as someone who has come into NPR relatively new. It is a nice collegial environment. No, no place is perfect, but it is very got some drama it's a nice, here and there. You've got some drama, but it's collegial. It is collegial. <laughs> That's I can say that. Yeah. So it, it, the, the court has changed, but over time, how do you feel about the way you do your job, the way you report, not just technology-wise, obviously that's changed, but do you? is there any change in the way that you approach subjects or the way you re- approach reporting now compared to the way you did, you know, you know, years back? Even, I would say, 10 years ago, I didn't cover every hiccup 
of any significance at the court because I had other things to do and I and a broader beat even then. But now with all of these platforms, if it won't make it onto All Things Considered that night or if it happens at 1130 at night, which sometimes it does, we have digital we have to worry about. And so there, here I am up in my garret, you know, typing away at 1.30 in the morning because the Supreme Court decided to issue a new order about voting somewhere or COVID and religion somewhere. And my husband is ganashing his teeth when the phone rings and, it's, and the voice says, hi, this is Ashley at the court. He knows that means I'm out of bed and upstairs. And Ashley at the court, is she like the press per- person or who's Ashley at the court? Well, actually, darling Ashley has just left as one of the assistant press people, but they have a whole cadre of people and they pass around the duty of working late at night. Oh, okay. Uh, and they call, they call you at home and then they wake you up and then it's time to go to work. They call you at home and they say, uh, the court's just issued an order. Well, that means, you know, I go upstairs and open my laptop and look and there it is. And I have to figure out what this means and tell the world. Aisha, we need to get the White House to give us personal calls like that. <laughs> I know. I don't just, get no calls. We just they check Twitter. Me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It pays to have a press corps that's only probably about 20 or 25 people. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's too many of these White House reporters. We're, we're like a dime a dozen. <laughs> Nina, thanks for, for spending some time with us talking about the court and NPR. I always enjoy it. Thanks so much for having me. And we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk to Mara Eliason about how covering the White House has changed over the years and also a big dramatic moment she found herself right in the middle of during Bill Clinton's presidency. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. We are back and we've got Mara Eliason here with us. Hey, Mara. Hi, Scott. So I want to talk about one moment from your career that every time I hear you tell people about it, I I just love hearing about the story. It's so interesting. It's such a fluke of fate and timing and so many things. And that is the fact that you and Robert Siegel had an interview with Bill Clinton in the Oval Office that was pre-scheduled, but it just happened to come right at the exact instant that the Monica Lewinsky story first broke. And you and Robert Siegel are talking to Bill Clinton on live radio about this very confusing story that would have enormous repercussions. What do you remember about that moment, that interview? Yeah, this was really an extraordinary thing. Uh, The reason we got an interview with him, along with two other news outlets, one was PBS and one I think was The Hill, its previous iteration, um, was that he was giving the State of the Union address either the next day or or the day after that. And presidents usually give a couple interviews before the State of the Union. So we got one of them. And I even had a little scoop that I was going to ask him about, which was what he was going to say about Social Security and protecting it. Um, but so we had the scheduled interview. Uh, we woke up on the day of the interview and we see that the Post has broken this story about Monica Lewinsky. And Robert and I are sitting in his office and we look at each other and we go, oh, my God, we're going to have to ask him about this. <laughs> this is gross. You know, this is like we have to talk. How do we do this? And was it was it tense? Was was the White House saying, you can't ask about this? Or was there any sort <laughs> no, no, of like, no. like what, what, no, what did No, there feel wasn't like? that. But what. There wasn't that, but what there was was a tremendous delay. We were supposed to talk to him at 
2 p.m., I think. Well, it kept on getting pushed back and pushed mm. back. Because, and then, of course, we were wondering, are they, are he going to cancel the whole thing? Yeah. No, but Bill Clinton would never cancel. He is Mr. High Wire Act. And, and to be clear, the story that had broken that morning was that he had had the affair with Monica Lewinsky and he was, like, trying to cover it up. That he had been questioned about it in the Paula oh. Jones depositions. And mm. I, in my own decorous way, asked him, gee, Mr. President, was there any kind of relationship with Miss Lewinsky that could have been misconstrued? <laughs> I mean, it was so, when I think about it, it was just so ridiculous. But we didn't know anything then but what we had read in the Post. Let's listen to that moment and, and, and then talk about it. Mr. President, where do you think this comes from? Did you have any kind of relationship with her that could have been misconstrued? Maura, I'm going to do my best to cooperate with the investigation. I want to know what they want to know from me. I think it's more important for me to tell the American people that it wasn't in proper relations. I didn't uh, ask anybody to lie, and I intend to cooperate. And I think that's all I should say right now so I can get back to the work of the country. Mm-hmm. But you're not able to say whether you had any conversations with her about her testimony. I think at it would all. be. Any I think. I think, given the state of this investigation, it would be inappropriate for me to say more. I've said everything I think that I need to say now. Uh, I'm going to be cooperative, and we'll work through it. There's another incredible moment where he said, "I don't know anything more about this than you do, Mara." <laughs> and unless well. you knew a lot about <laughs> it, that wasn't true. <laughs> and <clears throat> I don't think any American questions the fact that I've worked very hard at this job. And anything that's a distraction, I dislike. And. Uh, do you, do you see this as a partisan attack? Is that what I didn't say that. I, I, I don't know what the facts are. I don't know enough to say any more about this. I don't want to get into that. I, I, you, you know at least as much about it as I do. Uh, that was an outright lie. Now, I will say this. In terms of how his demeanor, I have taught – at that point, by that point, I had had many conversations with, with Bill Clinton, some of them with other reporters, some of them not. Bill Clinton is an incredibly – articulate, fluent. I mean, he is a master communicator. And two things really struck me about that interview. One is uh, he has an extremely large jaw. He has a big head. (laughs) And I noticed that his jaw muscle was pulsing. It was like mm. it was almost like he had a big wad of tobacco in in the back of his jaw and he was chewing on it and it was just pulsing with tension. Uh, that was the one thing that really stuck with me. And the other thing was that when we were discussing other issues, we at some point moved on from Monica Lewinsky. He lost his train of thought at one point. That was shocking to me. Bill Clinton never loses his train of thought. He was clearly distracted. He was clearly tense because of the pulsing jaw muscle. And, you know, this was Bill Clinton on the high wire for sure. Did, did you sense then because of that, that he wasn't t- like do, in that moment? Did you think, oh, he's lying? Yeah, sure. I didn't know what the whole story was. But to have someone say, I don't know anything more about this than you do, Mara, um, about someone he was supposedly had an affair with. And the rest of the time he's saying, I don't really think I should say this because the investigation is ongoing or I should talk about it. No, it was clearly... I mean, how can I explain this? I didn't know what the truth was, but my impression was that this guy is not telling the truth to me. You know, we're on the other side of the Trump era now. You know, politics have gotten so personal, so core, so everything is in bounds. I mean, at this particular moment, 
it wasn't quite there yet. Like how how has what's in bounds in politics? How have scandals and how they affect DC changed over the years from your perspective? Well, they've changed by curvature of the earth. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's almost quaint to think the biggest problem facing the country was whether the president of the United States had an affair with an intern and lied about it. I mean, those were the good old days. Now, <laughs> Uh, we have one party that doesn't believe in accepting the results of an election if they're not the winners. I mean, we're we're in a whole, and we had nine eleven in between. Mm-hmm. So we are in a whole new kind of era in terms of threats to the country, threats to our democracy, behavior of presidents, and what's accepted. Um, you know, many people say Bill Clinton lowered the bar and made Trump possible, but in terms of a political story. Those were the good old days when the worst thing facing the country was the moral turpitude of the president. You know, now we have democratic institutions that are being attacked and undermined every single day. So I want to ask about one last thing. The interview ends with with, with Robert saying something that just made me laugh listening to it now. Mr. President, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. Um, I'd like to tell our listeners that the uh, entire transcript, uh, as well as audio of this interview, will be available later this evening on our website, which is www.npr.org. And once again, thank you very much. Thank you. So clearly, it sounds like the internet's still kind of a new thing in coverage here. (laughs) (laughs) You can go to that dial-up thing and type in www.npr.org, and there will be stuff there. (laughs) Later, and it it took hours, right? So, you know... (laughs) That's the days where you had to make sure your mom didn't pick up the phone uh, to to mess up that dial-up internet connection. <laughs> but, but here we are podcasting. Mara, you are you are one of our listeners' favorite people on the podcast, and I'm just wondering, like, how has how has the world of podcast and Twitter and all the other stuff we do now for that NPR.org website changed the way you cover or think about politics? Well. Actually, in a way, it hasn't changed at all. I consider myself to be a lowly content provider, (laughs) and I don't really care what platform my content is on. I just keep on talking and telling you what I talked about with other people. So in that way, it hasn't changed. But, but, but I don't want to sound, you know, sound like I'm oblivious to modern technology. Modern technology has allowed me to do this from anywhere I am. Um, I can, you know, just being a mother of two children, I can, that has made my life immeasurably better. We have apps, Mm -hmm. you know, you can do it anywhere. You don't just have to do it in a studio. You don't have to unscrew the handset of a telephone and put alligator clips on it so you can file from New Hampshire. Um, You know, so, yes, I remember I started when I was 10. Um, So, you know, things have changed. So technology has been incredible. It's been able to, it means that I can get my content and NPR's content to listeners much faster. That's huge. It's changed the whole way political politicians communicate, the whole way political communication is conducted. Uh, So it's been a complete sea change. But in terms of the core of what I do, I'm doing the same thing. Nobody's got to run the tape down the hall. 
Nobody has to run to the tape down the hall. But otherwise, we're talking to people, trying to figure out what it means, trying to tell our listeners what we think it means. Um, that hasn't changed. At least at NPR, that hasn't changed. That's a good place to end this this 50th anniversary special celebrating 50 years of talking to people and telling you what we talked about with those people and what it means. Hopefully we'll do that for another 50 years. And as Robert Siegel said, you can catch all of this at NPR.org. <laughs> I'm Scott Detrow. I cover the White House. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I also cover the White House. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. Thank you for listening to this podcast for almost six years and for listening to NPR for 50 years. Yeah.